Good morning, Three Rivers Church. If you would, um, I'm going to ask you, I'm going I'm to say something here in just a moment, but before I do, I'm just going to ask you to join me in a, a time of prayer uh, for our nation. Um, and, and I'll explain why we're going to, if you don't know why, then I want to talk to you in just a moment, okay? So I'm going to just ask you to pray for God's mercy and favor on our country. And uh, let's take a few moments to do that. And I just want to invite you, I know if you're a visitor today, what I'm about to do is probably weird to you, uh, but our goal is Jesus. Uh, and His kingdom and righteousness and truth. And so I want to invite you to join us in caring about that this morning. So pray. And then I'll, I'll say a couple of things. And we're going to jump into our new series, The Seven I Am Statements of Jesus. So join me in prayer. Father, we ask for your favor on our land today. Um, not because we're inherently deserving. Um, we're not. We're not the kingdom. This nation is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom is epitomized in the church. We have one king and his name is Jesus and everything else comes under him. uh, Maybe 20th down the line. And so Jesus, we ask you to help our land. We pray for your people today to, to have a spine of steel. As Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Malachi and Amos and Obadiah. Stand. God... Let us be like that today. Not wimpy, mamby-pamby, mealy-mouthed, afraid to offend anybody and stand on your kingdom and the values of your kingdom, but help us today to be people of character. People of your word. Oh God, have mercy on us for knowing your word and not doing something, but even worse, not knowing what you say. We pray for a spirit of repentance to come over your church, your people. That we wouldn't be consumers looking for a product to advance our inner desires. But we would be givers of our money and our lives for what counts, what matters. God, do that in your church. It's got to start in the church. It's got to start here, Jesus. We know that. We recognize that. So, Jesus, I pray you'd move by your Spirit on your people all across this land and have mercy on us today. Have mercy on us. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Uh, If you stick your head in the sand and don't care to know about your world, you're probably ignorant of what happened yesterday. And I want to say this to you. There's no place for the Christian to not know. It is absolutely imperative for the Christian to know. It is the fact that the Christians in Germany put their head in the sand And allowed a rising tide of nationalism to take over the Lutheran church. And to be used as an instrument by one of the world's most notorious dictators. To kill six million people. Jew. Gypsy. That didn't fit the Aryan mold. For the sake of an empire that is now dead. And so for Christians to put their head in the sand and pretend this didn't happen and to not notice that tide in our land is folly and it is absolutely irresponsible on the part of Christians to not know. Because the night before and yesterday was the gathering of the Unite Right movement, epitomized by the alt-right. And I posted an article on the public page and the Facebook page for you to read. It's not a two-paragrapher. So if you don't have the attention span wider than a YouTube video, you're going to struggle, okay? And you need to work on that. 
But you need to go read that and know what we're dealing with. Because yesterday, the movement launched public to take back the white South. And alternative protesters were plowed into by people. And guys standing saying, Heil Trump. (laughs) What do you do with that, right? Except to say, Jesus hates that. Don't put on Jesus, just love and sweet and it's okay, everything. No, Jesus hates that. Jesus hated it so much, He went to the cross to die, to crush it. And He sent us with His Word to be agents of His kingdom so that we would be knowledgeable and be willing to die like the Bonhoeffers if necessary for the gospel. These people put the name of Jesus on top of what they say and do. And if you don't know that, you have no business not knowing. You need to know. You need to read. You need to be aware. You need to watch the news. You need to read. You need to understand. You need to know because this is the day for us to stand. This is a day for us to separate ourselves from those who call themselves Christian and yet in the name of Jesus trumpet something that puts everybody not white on the outside. It's not right. It's sin. It's idolatry. It's wrong. God hates it and we must hate it too. And so I want to say to anybody who will listen to this podcast and people from 32 countries listen to us online every week. And people in our town listen. We have an audience bigger than what gathers here on Sunday morning. You need to know that. And I want anybody who hears to know if you want to come after Jesus, you are welcome inside this room and at the Kingston campus. Welcome. If you don't want those people here, there are two doors right back there. I invite you to stand now and leave. Because that's not what we are. Does that make sense? It's not what we are. It's not what we are. And so I want you to know that you are welcome here if you want to come after Jesus. Alright? And there couldn't be a better passage to help us contrast that with the kingdom than the very first passage of our series called the Seven I Am Statements of Jesus. And our first passage is in John six twenty two to 59 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Because our, our goal... Our goal in coming to the text is John's goal. We don't, we don't come to the text and we don't read on to the text a goal other than that of God's purpose that is stated. And John states his purpose in John 20, 31. John says, this is why I'm writing to you. And John says in chapter 20, verse 31, But these things are written. What things? Everything he just wrote. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So I've written that you can know Jesus is the promised one. We just spent 16 weeks studying the Old Testament up to the New Testament and how the gospel is preached through the text of the Old Testament. It points us to Jesus. And John comes and says, He's the one. He's the promised one. And if you believe, you have life. And so therefore, everything you read in the Gospel of John must subject itself to that intention. So therefore, when we read the Gospel of John, we understand when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, what Jesus is saying is, in just a moment, we'll exegete that. Jesus is letting you know He is life. Life isn't found in getting your guy elected. 
Life is not found in your party being in the majority. Life is not found inside the geopolitical boundaries of the United States of America. Life is found in none other than Jesus and Jesus alone. We have one King, one Ruler, one God, one Lord, one Savior, one Mediator between God and man. And He is Jesus. That's it. And so if you find hope in anything other than Jesus, if you relaxed the the day you guy or gal got elected, you have an idol. Because you don't relax because somebody got elected. You relax because the king sits on the throne. And he's looking forward to Revelation 19 when he returns. And his white robe is dipped in blood and it's not his anymore. And he carries a sharp two-edged sword with which to bring the nations under his rule. And he sits down on his throne as king of the universe, king of all order, and rules for eternity well. That's where we find our hope. But what we're going to find in John 6 is, that's not where they had their hope. Their hope was that there might be a rising political power again called Israel. And they might depose the emperor and Herod and once again have their place back. And Jesus says, no, I am life. I'm life. So our stated goal is that we as a church would see that salvation is found in no one else. That life is found in no one else other than Jesus. And what I want to do is spend the majority of our time unpacking what you're supposed to do without. The exegesis of John chapter 6, particularly verse 35, is not real complicated. It's pretty simple. We can do that in about 30 seconds. What I want to spend time doing is, okay, so what? What are we supposed to do with that? And it's more than just say, oh, wow, Jesus is bread. Awesome. Right? And you see this like in Mark 4. In Mark, he records Jesus feeding a bunch of people like he's doing here. And then he sends his disciples on a mission and he's with them. And they're in a boat. And they start, hey, we didn't bring any bread. What are we going to do? And Jesus goes, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And it's because we didn't bring bread. He's telling us, beware of the bread of those guys. He goes, do you not yet get it? How many baskets full of leftover pieces did you pick up when I made bread for you? Supernaturally. Oh. (laughs) My bad. So even they didn't understand. They're still thinking, I need food to eat. And Jesus is going, no, you need to beware of what they're teaching, the lies they're propagating. Beware of the leaven. The Pharisees and Herod. They're stuck on bread. And so what we're going to see here is very clearly Jesus tell us that He is life. He alone is life and there is life nowhere else. And what I want to do is unpack what that means for us. John's going to start in chapter 1 by telling us Jesus is the eternal Word of God. There's so much to deal with there. But again, we're doing a series that's topical in nature. And so we're not going to unpack what it means for Jesus to be the Word of God. And why we have a Bible that calls itself the Word of God. But Jesus is the eternal Word who makes all things. And who has life and light in Himself. And He, the Word, took on flesh and put His glory on display for all to see. And He came to crush the serpent and bring life to those in death. 
John chapter 2, Jesus manifests His glory. That glory that He says in chapter 1 verse 14, He put on display, He puts it on display in creating wine at the wedding in Cana. Then after that cool event, He cleanses the temple because they had shut out everybody but the Jews. And He quotes His word that He gave in the Old Testament that my house is a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So he cleanses the temple, meek, mild Jesus turns over tables, gets a whip and rushes everybody out. And that doesn't fit our worldview of Jesus. Now does it? Jesus is supposed to be sweet. No. He's the eternal creator of the universe. And he has a standard of right and wrong and you break it. If you're not underneath the cross of Jesus Christ, you get crushed. What did Peter say? The foundation stone, the cornerstone Jesus of whom if it falls on you, you get crushed. If you fall on it, you get crushed. That's Jesus. He's the cornerstone. So He cleanses the temple in zeal for His glory. And in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, we get this amazing statement that really sets the stage for the conflict for the rest of the book of John where many entrust themselves. They see the signs. Wow, Jesus made wine. I want wine. And Jesus made wine. I want to be where Jesus is at. And it says they believed in His name, but you get this really wild statement where John tells us, but Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them because He knew them. He knew chapter 6 was coming. Chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus what it is to be a disciple. And it's that He has to be born again. That is, in order to follow Him, the Father, He'll say in chapter 6, verse 44, you don't come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws you. Period. That's the way it is. You don't come on your own initiative. You don't come on your own will. You don't come on your own knowing. You come because the Father sent you to me. That's why you come. Jesus tells it to Nicodemus like this. That happens because of a new birth. And of course Nicodemus says, How can I get back in my mother's womb and be born again? You read that sometimes and go, Oh, really? Did you really? You're you're a grown man. (laughs) You really thought that. You feel bad for Nicodemus. You're like, that's how blind people are in the curse. Jesus speaks of these great truths. You're like, I can't call back in my mother's womb and come out again. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So Jesus says, here's what it is to be a disciple. You have to be changed. You have to be born again. And then born again people will come after me. Because you'll say in chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. Because <laughs> that's sheep hear the voice. They can't hear other voices because they're attuned to the, the shepherd. Right, I'm getting in on other guys who'll be preaching that passage in a few weeks, so I'll leave their passage alone. Then in chapter four, Jesus engages in this direct action ministry appointment. You read John four; the language is intentional. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, Jews don't travel through Samaria because they're not Jews; they're another ethnicity. I hated them. And so they would travel around Samaria. They would go miles and miles out of the way to avoid walking through where people of color were. And Jesus had to go through Samaria. And He has this direct action appointment with this hated Samaritan woman who has a questionable sexual ethic. And He gives her a new life and saves her and turns her into an evangelist. Because that's what Jesus does. And in John 5, Jesus begins to teach about what his identity is. And this is really, 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 really where things get sideways with Jesus. He starts to talk about the fact that he is that one. He's God. There is no other. Like John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It's they that bear witness about me. Everything you're reading, Genesis to Malachi, boys, it's about me. 
And then in John 5, 46, you, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Okay, you, you've done it now, Jesus. You, you're saying you're God. Yep. And the conflict intensifies. When we get to John chapter 6, he's got a large following because he's doing miracles. He's making bread for people. Why not? He's making bread. I'm in. He made wine. I'm in. And so they're following him around. And we're on the cusp of the Passover. And people are coming from all over the world who are of the Judaism ilk. And they're hearing about this guy who makes bread and wine from nothing. They're following after him. And Jesus asks his disciples how we're going to feed these people. And they're, uh, I don't know. Paraphrase. With five loaves and two fish, Jesus creates bread and fish. And he feeds them. But then we see where their hard attitude is. Because in verse 15, it says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. They put forward their political candidate. They found their guy. And they wanted him to depose Herod. And then the emperor himself, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Because Jesus didn't come to sit on the throne of Rome. He made Rome. He made the emperor. He rules the emperor's heart. You heard the Proverbs? You ever read the Proverbs? I mean, read the Proverbs. I mean, really read the Proverbs. And believed them. The king's heart is in the Lord's hands and the Lord turns it wherever he will. You believe that? I mean, you really believe that? I mean, really? That Jesus rules the hearts of kings... And when he's ready for them to make a decision, he'll make it happen because he's God. You believe that? Or have you talked yourself out of that? Because that's just not consistent with the humanist theology. And I'm a better humanist than I'm a Christian. So no, God can't do that. No, he does. (laughs) So Jesus, I'm not here to sit on Rome's throne. Jesus is looking to Revelation 19 when he returns and crushes his enemies and sets up his eternal kingdom, which we looked at last week, Revelation 21-22 of which we will be part of if you're in Christ, right? That's short-circuiting things. I don't need Rome. I created Rome. I own the stars in the sky. It's mine. And so they want to come and make Him king by force, and He withdraws, because that's not what He came for. And it's evening time, and His disciples get into a boat to go to the back across. And Jesus doesn't go with them. And so the wind's blowing against them. They're having a hard time. And Jesus comes walking on the water. And I think it's really cool. And when he tells them who he is, don't be afraid, it's me. And so they were at that point glad to take him on the boat. Can you imagine? That would be really strange. Like Somebody's walking on water, one. Two, you find out it's Jesus. And then third, when they take him on board, they immediately were to the place they were going. Because that's what Jesus does. Takes care of his people. And then we get to verse 22 to 58, where Jesus is going to tell us, I'm life. I'm the bread of life. Verse 22, 25, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
the crowd. Jesus taught and fed now mobilizes to go find Jesus. And we get to verse 26. And we see the problem. Jesus reveals to them the problem. Jesus answered them because verse 25, they found him, right? I mean, think about this for a second. You're, you're, in, a, you're in a nation, right? And he's gone and you don't know where he went. And you start investigating to find out where. And you get in boats and you row and you go find him. And likely it doesn't tell us the time frame, right? They just found him on the other side. So they go and they find Jesus. Because he just made bread. And here's what Jesus says. He answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. We would think, they're going after Jesus. This is good. And Jesus goes, no, it's not good. You're coming after me because you want the bread I made. You don't want me. And I have a feeling that much of the American experience is a bunch of people seeking the soothing of their own desires not to just innately have Jesus. You want bread. You want me to provide healing for you. You want me to provide food for you. You want me to give you a third car, fourth car, fifth car, lake house. You want what I can provide for you, but you're not so much interested in me. And what's interesting here, this account draws, and this is where we tell you, we try to disciple you. This is why we did 16 verses. I want you to read your Old Testament. Because as you read your Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you'll find these amazing parallels. Where things happening in the New Testament are mirrors of what was happening in the Old Testament. It's because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And this, this account draws on the account of Israel after the Exodus. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 16. They cross the sea. God makes a way. They cross the, the, the sea on dry land to follow the Lord. And what happens when they get across the sea? Immediately they get hungry. Then they call God into question and are ready to go back to Egypt. Here, Jesus crosses the lake. The people follow. They get hungry. And then they begin to question Jesus. As Israel's craving for food was greater than their craving for the Lord, the people in John 6 wanted food more than they wanted Jesus. And think, think this through. Jesus had just fed a host of humanity with five loaves and two fish. By the way, I hope you understand when it says 5,000 men, that's besides women and children. So we're looking maybe ten to 12,000 people. He feeds with five loaves and two fish. You'd think that they'd rather have Jesus than the bread because after all, He was the one that made the bread. But such is the curse, right? The people of John 6 just got fed, but rather than have the source, they decided they just wanted the bread and the fish. Verse 27 tells us here, do not work, and this is Jesus continuing His instruction, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So Jesus said, you, you're coming after me because you want the bread. Don't come after the bread. Don't come after the bread. I make bread. <laughs> and you think this through. He's the God who made from nothing all things. And they're coming for bread. So he said, don't work for that. What you want is eternal life. He said, it's better to get eternal food than food that fills the stomach. In verse 28... 
the people asked the correct question. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? That's the right question. And then Jesus answers verse 29. This is the work of God. And this is the best news in the world. That you believe in Him who He sent. Here's the work. Belief. Belief. Now I want you to notice their response. Again, this shows you the blindness, the deadness of those in the curse. So they said to Him. Remember, He just fed ten to 12,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Remember that, right? Ready? What do we do, Jesus, to have this life? Believe, He says. So they said to Him... Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? I mean, the blindness. What sign are you going to do? And, and you should be, you're reading the text, He just fed you. He made bread on the spot without an oven and flour and stuff. What sign? What, what's wrong with you? Right? What work do you perform, Jesus? And then then they give him an example of what they're looking for. Jesus, in case you don't know, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You remember that, Jesus? And Jesus is like, yeah, I was the one that gave it to them. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven. They're quoting the Bible. And they're lost. You can quote the Bible and be lost. Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Did I not call you Lord? And Jesus will say, I don't, I don't know you. you got to get out of here. You're gone. This is not your place. They quote the Bible to Him. And then Jesus says to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. What they had really done, you go and study, they really, Moses had become their God. It's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread that the bread of God is He. So He tells you what the bread is. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, from John chapter one, who's the one who has life? Who's the Word? Who gives life to men? Jesus. We understand that. We know that. So they said to Him, "Sir, give us this bread always." And then Jesus says to them, and here it is, ready? They want this bread. They just want bread. Not Jesus, who metaphorically is equating His very life to food that gives life. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am that bread. So therefore, whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. So Jesus says, you want the bread? Here I am. And then he's going to go on in the chapter, and this is where it gets really sticky. He's going to say in language that we understand and proves the fact that they're dead and blind. He says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Meaning, I am what you need. You are to be all into me. And you know what they did? They left. Because this was a hard teaching. In other words, it's hard to say it's all about you, Jesus. Jesus, can't I have you and some of this other stuff too? And they leave when Jesus says no. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Do you want to leave too? And Peter's response is, Where am I going to go? You are life. So Jesus said, Here it is. I'm life. 
You, you don't get life in eating bread. You don't get life in deposing the emperor and Herod. You don't get life by getting rid of the Roman army. Life's not found in the temple mount. I'm life. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now there are two ways you can read that statement. Number one, either Jesus is saying that He is the fuel, your bread of life, so He's the fuel and the way to get to life, and you read onto life something Jesus doesn't intend. So Jesus is the bread of life. So life's kind of, life is this, what I want to make it to be. Life's having these things and, and having this person or having this experience and, and having this or, or getting that and feeling this way and all these wonderful things that I think is life. And Jesus is the bread of. And so if I get Jesus, I get all these things too. You can read it that way. But you would be wrong. Because if you read the rest of the passage, Jesus tells us what He means when He says, you got to eat me and drink me. Because I'm life. Or you can read it, Jesus is the bread of life, meaning He is life. And grammatically, that's called apposition. Oh, i got my nerd. Oh, I feel better as an educator. That's called the genitive of apposition. When you have that of relationship between two things in a sentence, it's called a genitive. And a positive means that, that one defines the other. This is, this is that. What Jesus is saying is, boys, girls, children, emperors, I'm life. I'm life. So you want life? You really want eternal life? Then it's me. It's me and only me. There's nothing else. There's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's, get to preach that one in a few weeks too. I'm life. I'm it. So ask this question. What in the world does this mean? What in the world does this mean? Because we can walk out of here today and say, Oh, Jesus is life. That felt good. But that's not the point. It's just to feel good. I mean, it's awesome that we can feel good about Jesus being life. But Jesus means this in a way that it caused Peter and the others to stay and some to go, Mm-mm. I'm out. So what does this mean? I've got a few. And this is just a few, right? This isn't everything. This is just a few because we'll have a few minutes together. Um, what does this mean? Number one. It means that God, through Jesus alone, is who fixes the dead state of sinners. In other words, there's no way to leave the deadness of the fall unless one comes through Jesus or as he told Nicodemus, you got to be born again. In other words, it's only through Jesus that new life comes. You're never going to get life seeking it anywhere else other than Jesus. One of the great things about what Jesus taught is he set himself apart as the only means to life. And everything the world wants to offer you promises life, right? More stuff equals more life, right? If we get this person to rule better life, and some people think, well, no, it's not that person. Forget this person. Better life. Or, or um, if, if, uh, if, I, if I don't have this pressure on me, I'm going to have life. 
No, the only way we get life is to be born new, to be born fresh, for God to transform us, for the gospel to change us, for the good news of Jesus and His kingdom, the death, burial, and resurrection, the King of the universe who came to die in our place for our sin and crush the serpent's head and provide the sacrifice for the curse so that it can be broken and to be buried and rise on the third day and ascend to heaven where He rules and manages the advance of His kingdom well through His church. That message is the only thing that will bring life. That message and that message alone. Which is why you'll hear us say things like you never outgrow the gospel. You never get past the good news of the kingdom. It is life. It is the start of life. It's the middle of life. It's the beginning of life. Jesus is the beginning, middle, and end. And it kind of makes sense just in the grand scheme if you just want to get really really heady here. If the only thing that is eternal in the universe is the Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then there's nothing He created that can give us life. Only the one who is the creator of life can give life. Meaning, and this is what Paul means in Romans 1, where he said what we did, we traded in the true knowledge of God for His creation. And we made idols in the form of all these things. And so, the only way we get life is in Jesus. Secondly, There is more, listen to this, there's more to existence than the mere satisfaction of physical needs. There is more to existence than the mere satisfaction of physical needs. You see, the the curse does this thing where it binds us, or it blinds us, blinds us. Let me go back and read my sentence again. The curse does this thing where it blinds us to greater needs by the intensifying of lesser needs. Martin Luther said it like this, My flesh is wont to grumble dreadfully. Let me translate that for you. The physical stuff is louder than the spiritual stuff. And it shouts it down. It tamps it out. The curse blinds us to greater needs by intensifying lesser ones. Make no mistake. Food, water, clothing are all needs and they're not evil. They're good, but they're lesser ones. How do we know? Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, after telling them, don't seek food, don't seek these things, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and then I'll give you everything you need to keep coming after my kingdom. The curse tells us, no, get the food, get the water, get the clothing, get the stuff, get the self-made security, get all these things. And Jesus says, no, don't go after them first. Come after my rule over your life first, and I'll make sure I give you everything you need to keep doing that. That's Jesus, Matthew 6.33. But the curse intensifies the desire for food and water and clothing and other things above God. And Jesus is telling them here, I'm life. The reality is you can really make it without bread. You need me, the maker of bread. You ever heard of Aesop's fables? The goose that laid the golden egg? What's the moral there? That the desire and the greed and the farmer and his wife for the gold led to them killing the source of the gold? The goose? Couldn't wait for the goose to lay another egg, so let's just kill the goose and get all the eggs out of the goose at one time. That's us. That's us. Jesus makes bread, and I want bread, so let's get rid of Jesus so we can just have bread. 
That's what the curse does. That's what, that's what the Garden of Eden and the fall in the Garden in Genesis 3 did to us. Is We wanted what God could provide rather than God Himself. In the curse, we seek the lesser to the neglect of the greater. That's the essence of idolatry. It's when we take good things and we turn them into God things and then they become bad things. Third, life goes deeper than food and drink. Life goes deeper than food and drink. And I need to continue to learn that life goes deeper than food and drink. They had the creator of everything. In their presence. And the only thing you can think about is food. Right? You think of things that drive you ahead of Jesus. And and then what we want to do is use Jesus as a means to get those things, right? It's, I mean, maybe I'm just preaching to me. Maybe you are just one step away from stepping into the eternal kingdom. I don't know, but I I want to make Jesus my means to an end. And part of God's work in our life is for Jesus to make Him our end. That if I have Jesus and nothing else, I'm good. And this, this is something I continue to see as God gives us the opportunity to be around the world and work in other places. I see believers with nothing happier than those who have everything. <laughs> and then I'll ask the dumb question, what's wrong with them? It's not them, it's me. It's, it's not them, it's me. Because I love what Jesus can give me more than I love Jesus. Because life goes deeper than food and drink. It just does. And finally, Jesus is not a means to another end. Listen, Jesus is the means and the goal. Listen, dear Christian, never use Jesus as a rubber stamp for justifying the pursuit of things less than Jesus. That makes sense. Make sure that what we're pursuing falls under the rule of His kingdom. And then we may put His name on Him. This is what Jesus means when He talks about praying in His name and asking in His name. See, we have a weird concept of name. We, we don't understand name. What did God give Adam to do in the garden before He made him a wife? He gave him the job of what? Naming. That's a distinct function of image bearers. And to name something is to have authority over it. It's to put a spirit over it, an attitude over it. Now that's weird for us Baptists, we don't think about that. But that's what it means. To have the authority to name something is to put over them an identity cow. You think that's not powerful? What do you call them? Cows. Because that was a distinct function of an image bearer to give it an identity. When Jesus teaches us to pray in His name, we hear magical incantation. We hear wave the wand to make sure we got what we just asked for. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is to ask in my name is to put my authority over what you're asking. It is to agree with me that that's what I want. And so we say in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, Jesus, I ask for that because that's what you want. And then and only then did Jesus say, then you have what you asked for. Because we just asked for what He wanted. And God's going to do His good work in His kingdom. And the goal of the Spirit in us is to make us want what He wants, not what we want. 
Does that make sense? And so, Jesus isn't a means to another end. Jesus is the means and the end. So, how do we obey? That, these are some things this means. How do we obey? First thing I want to say, because you never know, you never, never know who's listening. Be saved. Be saved. You've heard enough gospel this morning in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the eternal King of the universe, that He can bring you to life. I have great hope every time we gather because you never know who's sitting there in the state of their heart. As I've told you my story before, at 20 years old, I sat in a room pretending to be a Christian and heard the gospel for the first time and Jesus took me from death to life. And you never know who's pretending in the room. I was, I was not there for Jesus. And Jesus says, bucko, you're mine. Boom! Haven't been the same since. So you never know who's sitting in the room. So I say to you today, if you have heard and something weird happened on the inside of you, like, whoa, don't know just what happened. I understand, I see, I hear, blah, 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 blah. You just got saved. And I want to invite you to keep following Jesus. If that's you, some pastors will be standing in the back. Come talk to us when we're responding to the Lord in worship. Be saved. Hear and respond to the Lord in faith. Secondly, those of you who know you're in the faith, you trust in Jesus, you're walking by faith, you're walking in repentance, I want to say this to you. I'm going to try. This saved my life. (laughs) This saved my life. I'm at a liberal... It's not a liberal college anymore. It's weird now, but it's different. But at least it's not liberal. I'm a shorter college, now shorter university. Robert's dorm. I'm in this department that doesn't believe the Bible and all this stuff, but yet religion. And and I toss my Bible against the wall about to walk away from the faith. Hate God and deny His existence. And it fell open to Psalm 119, 116. If you don't think God's supernatural... My eye was drawn to verse 116. Sustain me according to your promise and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. That's the NIV. We've moved on. We're at the ESV. But I still know it in the NIV. And that's okay. It's inspired too. Um, and God rescued me. And just so happened that a guy named James Grant happened to be walking down the hall, popped in the room and said, hey, I got a book for you. And he handed me Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And then he handed me another book by Piper, it's a lot harder to read, <laughs> called The Justification of God and Exegesis, Romans 9, 1 to 23. And here's what I discovered from that. Number one, you can believe the gospel and still be smart. Smart doesn't equal have to deny the gospel. And number two, God wants me to be happy. And so here it is. So I'm going to lay on you my, my, my Piper crush, okay? I love Piper because he rescued me. God used him to, to save me. Seek liberation from lesser things by joyful pursuit of Jesus Christ who is the source of all we actually need. Seek liberation from lesser things by... Here's how you do that. How do we seek liberation from just wanting bread and not Jesus? How do we get over that? We do that by joyful pursuit 
of Jesus Christ, who is the source of all we actually need. You know what's interesting? Because people research Reformed Church, Reformed Baptist, and they find us. We pop up. Because we are. And people will call, text, sometimes visit, and I try to say hello to them. And you will be shocked at the people who are Reformed and Baptist and miserable. Unhappy, unwelcoming, cold. Hi. And I'm like, you are not a happy person. It's like, how can you like really understand Reformation theology and be sour? You can't. You don't get it. If you're sour and closed, you don't get it. You're just academic. You're mental. Yes, ma'am. So, a joyful pursuit of Jesus who is the source of all we actually need. And I want to I want to give you two recommendations. One, your Bible. It, God is a happy God. He pursues His glory through the satisfaction of saving sinners and making them happy in Him. That's, that's the essence of everything you'll ever read and every story in your Bible. Paul says it like this in Philippians 3, 8-9. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Do you understand the magnitude of what Paul's about to say? I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. I want to believe this more. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's a monumental statement. I count all this loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. English doesn't do that word justice. You may have heard this before, but that little word literally means poop. Paul uses poop. Poop humor is acceptable. It's right sometimes. And Paul says, I count them all as poop in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And that's, you could almost say that's the essence of Pauline theology. is His joy in Jesus is what drove him to be able to suffer well. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. This is nothing. Shipwrecked, beaten across the back with the cane, stoned and left for dead, hungry, naked. Jesus is better. Piper takes that and he writes this great book called Desiring God. Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. I'm not going to defend his title. He does that well in the book himself. He's not making up anything new. He's simply unpacking Paul's language and the implications of Scripture and coming after Jesus as our great delight. The essence of being converted, the essence of being a Christian, you ready? Is to find Jesus more enjoyable than anything else. That's it. It's in a nutshell. Jesus is better. The old catechisms. Luther's wrecking me, by the way. Luther's just wrecking me. I've done everything wrong. He's our 500th anniversary of the Reformation coming up. Right? So we're going to be doing the solas, the five solas. And we'll be doing Luther's biography on All Saints Day Sunday, November 5th. He's wrecking me. Wrecking me. Some of those old catechisms and teaching instruments say this. Man's chief end is... To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Bad grammar, good theology. The grammar should say man's chief ends 
R to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but they stated it on purpose. They weren't ignorant. Man's chief end, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why? Because they believed, as Paul believed, that to glorify God is to enjoy Him. It's the very essence of what it means to be converted is Jesus is better. I enjoy Him. I enjoy following Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is why Christians suffer with joy is because it's really, I mean, it, uh, it's not pleasant, but it's really, Jesus is good. You can't suffer well unless you really believe Jesus is good. I will say to you, this would probably be your hardest life pursuit. Because everything in our leftover sinful self, we have this battle going on inside of us. Some people call it the old man or the flesh versus renewed Holy Spirit, made new person. And what you feed will be the dominant voice. And the hardest pursuit in life will be fighting against that leftover sinful nature that wants to delight in everything but Jesus. And so what I say to you, as we seek to obey that, seek liberation from lesser things by joyful pursuit of Jesus Christ, who's the source of all that we actually need. In other words, the way you overcome sin is to delight in the Lord more than you do sin. When righteousness tastes better than sin, you will beat sin. It's that simple. Third, ooh, hurry, gotta hurry. Pursue joy in God. Because I said, you know, find Jesus, joy in Jesus. Pursue this joy in God by doing Romans 8.13, which tells us if we live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So pursue joy by killing things that are sinful. Put a sword to them. Don't let them live. How did Jesus say it? If your right eye offends you, right? Figurative language, please don't pluck out your eye. Figurative language by deal harshly with sin. So then one more step over. How do we do Romans 8.13? How do we do this? This is where I gotta, this is where I gotta end. We'll go through these quickly. They're all on the blog for you. How do we do, how do we kill sin? How do we put sin to death? Here we go. Number one, believe we're sons and daughters of God. Paul tells us how to do Romans 8.13 and verse 14 and verse 15. Believe that you're sons and daughters, not slaves. A spirit of sonship is what causes us to love Jesus more than sin. Act like sons and daughters. Versus slaves. Slaves seek to get, 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 get. Sons and daughters seek to give, 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 give. And when you've been made new by the gospel, you want to give God everything because everything is His and your greatest joy and delight is in Him. So therefore, you're a giver, 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 giver. Giving your life away, giving everything away. You're not seeking to get, you're seeking to give. So be a son and a daughter. Second, live as sons and daughters, not as slaves. So seek that identity and then seek to live it out. Third, live in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. How? Practice prayer and fasting as the power of joy in God. Practice prayer and fasting as the power of joy in God. How do you get through consistent prayer? And fasting, greater delight in Jesus. 
I told you this would be the fight of your life. This is the fight of your life. It's to find Jesus more satisfying. Have a disciplined Bible reading and study plan as the kindling of joy in God. You've got to be disciplined in your reading and your study as the kindling of joy in God. What fuels joy is knowing Him from the pages of Scripture. What you'll discover is if you proof text passages on God, you can make Him angry, you can make Him a sugar daddy, you can make Him anything you want Him to be. I mean, my Lord, I mean, just go read Hitler's use of the Lutheran church and their capitulation to him found its justification in the pages of the Bible misinterpreted and misused. You can make him whatever you want him to be. Know it in its entirety. A disciplined Bible reading and study plan as the kindling of joy in God. And what you will find is God wants His people to delight in Him. He wants them happy people in Him. The essence of idolatry is, again, is to take good things and turn them into God things and become bad things. In other words, take delight in something other than God. Pursue it more than you pursue Jesus. Right? Next, be consistent in covenant fellowship. Spiritual gifts happen in covenant fellowship. Life happens in covenant fellowship. Joy in God is pursued in covenant fellowship. One of the great things we delight in is being with our people. We, a few guys got together Friday night from our Radical Life group and watched dude movies and, and drank things and ate things. It was fun and we laughed at Talladega Nights because it's funny. And you know what? Jesus delights in our fellowship and enjoyment of each other as we enjoy Him. Jesus is happy over that. As we delight in that. So be consistent in time together. Practice solitude and silence. You will never hear the voice of the Spirit with the constant interference of stuff and noise. Practice silence and solitude. Discern the voice of God. When you practice silence and solitude, you're consistent in covenant fellowship, disciplined Bible study and reading plan, prayer and fasting. You learn to discern the voice of God, then be quick to obey. Being completely the Lord's instrument all the time, in the moment, obey. Cultivate Holy Spirit fruit, such as love, right? Love is the labor of joy in God. Because we delight in God, we love the way Jesus taught us to love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You made sense out of that? He meant that. Love your enemies. Not torch them. So, cultivate Holy Spirit fruit by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Suffer well as the sacrifice of joy in God. These statements are going to take some time to unpack. They're there written down for you. Suffer well as the sacrifice of joy in God. Cross cultures with the gospel as the battle cry of joy in God. How do you cross cultures? How do you work in hard places is joy in God. God delights in bringing people into His enjoyment. And the way that happens is through the preached gospel and the scope of that is the nation. And so it's our battle cry. So cross cultures with the gospel is a battle cry of joy in God. Give generously as the currency of joy in God. Joy finds its manifestation in people who are givers, not takers. And I mean in everything. Time, talents, money, abilities. Don't be a taker. Taking is a result of the flesh. Giving is a result of the Spirit. There's box in the back. We do work all over the world. We do restoration Rome. It costs money. And if you have a job, even if you don't, you owe God 
all things. All things are His. And He just says, start with a tenth. And so, don't be a taker, be a giver. He dropped money in that back. Not because we're going to spend it well, but because God demands it. It's the currency of joy in God. I can speak. I put a video up on the blog this week of, of Bob, who I will be with tomorrow night, Tuesday and Wednesday, planning a a little M Global Engagement conference that we'll have out there in Texas in November. I put a little blog of Bob, uh, a video on the blog of Bob talking about this type of thing. And I can tell you, truthfully, I know this personally. He's a spiritual mentor, spiritual father. Um, he gives more generously than anybody I know. Books, all the books that are sold, he turns around and gives that stuff away. He funds things that you'll never read about because it's not sexy. It's not pretty. And he'd be ashamed that I'm saying this to you right now. So we might need to edit that out. My point is, give generously. It's the currency of joy in God. And you'll never be around a happier individual. Full of life. Laughing. He'll make fun of me tomorrow and Tuesday and joy and fun. And I'll make fun of him. His happy rubs off on me. It's just man language. And give generously is the currency of joy in God. Be a giver like that. And then finally, worship. As the feast and consummation of joy in God. I have a long quote by Lewis I'm not going to read. You can go read that later. Worship as the feast and consummation of joy in God. Joy in God is not had until it's expressed. And that's that whole Lewis quote is all about that. You never ever see, you never see joy expressed until you see it manifest outwardly. It has to come out, right? It's just the way it is. This is why we worship. It's an opportunity for us to feast in the joy of the Lord. Amen. And so I want to invite you, Three Rivers Church, to experience Jesus as the bread of life. That is life. That's, that's where life is found. I promise you, there may be nothing more important than you do the rest of the day than this moment where you feast on the joy of the Lord. And there could be 150 things robbing you from that right now. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you release those things and simply enjoy Jesus as life. And so I want to invite you to do that and to fight that battle to feast on the joy of the Lord. Jesus is the bread of life. Father, we pray now that you help us to experience that for real. That we won't just say those words that you're the bread of life, but we will live them out today. That we'll be, yeah, we'll be people who stand on you as life. Not our agendas, but that you would become our agenda. Lord, I pray for repentance in the heart of your people. If there's repentance that needs to happen today, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make that happen because Jesus said you would. He said you'll convict concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if that needs to happen, would you do that today? I pray you'd release the tongue and the mouths of your people to take delight in you today, to feast in the joy of the Lord today. As Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So may we... Feast on your joy today. Um, Lord, I ask that you would help us to stand with spines of steel on righteousness. And be willing to take whatever comes because you're better. You're better. And I invite you, Three Rivers Church, if you need prayer, 
If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be in the back and ask the other pastors to come back there. Stand up. Find a pastor. We'll be glad to minister to you and pray for you. And I just want to lift you up in prayer. If that's a need of your heart, we'd love to minister to you in that way.